Well, friends, I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple question. What is the message of Christianity? What is the message of Christianity? If you had to give it in a sentence, what would you say? You know, in our increasingly globalized world where we have access to not just things and materials and goods and information just locally or even nationally, but now globally, messaging has become more and more important in our world. The increasing focus on the message of a company or an organization or a group or a movement has become central to now who they are and how they convey that to others. This ranges from everything to fast food restaurants, to social movements, to governments, to insurance agencies. You know, it's interesting, recently, I don't know if any of you saw it, but Aflac, yes, the insurance company with the duck, they had to recently begin changing the commercials just a little bit. They still had their token duck who would yell Aflac, but they had to start telling people what the business was actually for, what the insurance company was actually for, because all anybody ever knew was Aflac, oh yeah, that's the company with the duck. Messaging becomes increasingly important, especially as companies become larger, bigger, more social. But what of the church and what of Christianity? In many ways, we want to steer clear of business models and worldly ways of advertising ourselves. But it is for us in a culture that is increasingly opposed and confused about Christianity to know what the message is. I hope today's sermon will help those of you who are confused. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and perhaps curious what Christianity is all about, I think today's study of Acts 13 will be helpful. Now, as you know, many of you know, we've been going through the book of Acts, the story that we sometimes have called the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles. We've been going through this study since May at some point. I think we jumped into it or April. And we'll be going through it uh, up until Advent. But just to catch you up and recap you time period-wise what is going on, this may be helpful in today's sermon. You, you know, in the Gospels we hear around 30 A.D. That, that Jesus lives during that time. He is arrested, he is executed, and he rises from the dead. Around 30 A.D. Again, the book of Acts begins around this same time period with Jesus still here on earth around 30 A.D. giving his mission to his appointed apostles and then he ascends into heaven. And as we see in Acts 1 through around chapter 8 or 9, we see the first three years of what that mission looks like. And in 30 to 33 AD, we see the gospel begin to spread to Jerusalem and the close surrounding Jewish areas. It's around 33 AD that this man Saul, who was a, a leader in the Jewish, Jewish religion at the time, is radically converted on his way to Damascus, where he's seeking to persecute followers of what he calls the way, that being Jesus Christ. And then in today's passage, we come and jump some eight, nine, ten years ahead to around 47 to 48 A.D. We now find Saul with his friend Barnabas, the son of encouragement, going on what we know as their first missionary journey. One of the things we often miss in the book of Acts is that Luke can speed up time really quick in telling his story where for us it looks like just a span of a few verses. He moves fairly quickly. And so that's where we're at today in Acts 13. Really we're going to read verse 12, 25. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 12, picking up in verse 25, the very last verse of the chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, that's okay. We do have Bibles there in front of you. And Acts 12.25 is on page 866. 8.66 if you want to grab that Bible and turn there. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have Bibles in the foyer. We'd love to give you one today uh, for you or a friend you may know that needs one. Well, friends, as you turn to Acts 12.25, I'm going to be reading through verse 12 of chapter 13. Let me invite you to stand as I read. 
Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Acts 12:25 through 13:12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the, gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So what I just read to you is really the first section of what we find as three sections, starting in verse 1225, or yeah, verse 1225, moving all the way to the end of chapter 13. We're going to go all the way to 1352 today, and we really see three things begin to kind of rise to the surface as it specifically relates to this message. What is the message of Christianity? There are three things I want us to see today. If you want to write these down, let me go and tell you what they are. The first one is the message taken. And that's in that section I just read from 1225 to 13:12, the message taken. The second thing we're going to see is the message declared. And this is really the largest chunk of the passage from 13:13 13 to verse 41. And finally, we're going to see the message received in 13:42 through 52. And as we look at each of these sections, the message taken, declared, and received. My prayer for us is that we would walk away knowing ourselves the very message of Jesus Christ. And that those who receive it, it is life. But for those who turn away and reject it, it is death. Let's begin by looking at the message taken in 12.25 through 13.12. We see there at the very end of chapter 12, I read that last week for us, but I want to start here again because we see already this this raising up and sending out ministry that is already prevalent in the life of the local church. We're shortly going to see Saul and Barnabas sent out, but you see here in 1225 that they've already brought with them John Mark, who plays a significant role in the traveling of the gospel message. You'll remember John Mark, it was at his mom's house where the Christians were gathered and praying while Peter was in prison. And so as they go back to Jerusalem to take the money that the the church in Antioch had gathered to help the Jerusalem church during a time of famine, they're coming back and they bring with them this guy, John Mark. We see there as they're gathered in the church, gathered together in those first three verses of chapter 13. Specifically, there are prophets and teachers among them. Now this idea of prophets, often a lot of times in our minds, we tend to think about prophets as uh, fortune tellers, really, for lack of a better term. We think of them as saying the future. But we see here that prophets in the Bible have one significant role. And this is true in the Old Testament, but it's also true of the prophets we find in the New Testament. And that is that they speak on behalf of God. They speak the very words of God. This is why the Puritan William Perkins, in his book on preaching, he titles it, The Art of Prophesy. That is the art of handing down the very word of God. And so we see here really in the early church that's gathered at Antioch in Syria that there are preachers and teachers there who are leading God's people. And they're a different type of leaders as we see. We see that Barnabas and Saul kind of bookend this list. But there are three others that are mentioned there and they're worth looking at. You have this man 
who is named Simeon, who's also called Niger, which means black, more than likely from North Africa. And there's also this man, Lucia, from Cyrene, also a city in North Africa. The early church is already diverse, ethnically speaking. And not just ethnically speaking, but socially as well. You see this man who's mentioned here, Menaean, that he was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, for you Bible nerds, this is not Herod that was mentioned last week who died of worms. No, this is Herod the Tetrarch who was actually around and ruling during the time of Jesus. He's the one who was really excited to meet Jesus. Jesus comes to him after he's arrested and he asks Jesus all these questions. Jesus doesn't answer and he ends up mocking Jesus and sending him back to Pilate. We see here that there's this man who perhaps was with Herod when Jesus came and has begun following him. And these leaders have gathered together. And what does it say that they're doing? Well, they're fasting and they're praying and they're worshiping. It's during this time as the saints are gathered together that the Holy Spirit speaks. And as he speaks, he gives us some really key insights to understanding this. What is the will of the Lord? What would God have them do during this time? And he really presents us what we might say is a, a paradigm for understanding the will of God in our own time. We see here the importance of a couple things. First, the importance of discerning leaders in the church, but even on a more basic level, discerning God's direction in our own lives. There are three things that rise to the surface here that I want you to notice, specifically in verses 2 and 3. Look back there, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What we see here is three specific things that come about. The first one, we see a fulfillment of God's word. Not only had Jesus told them back in Acts 1.8 that he would send them to the nations, he is told that he will go to the Gentiles. And so God's word has come to them and he is going to be raised up and sent out. And now we see the Holy Spirit now confirming this in Saul's life and we see the people affirming it in his life. And so as we're kind of wrestling within our own lives, you know, what is God's will for my life? There are three things present here that give us a lot of guidance, a paradigm for understanding it ourselves. It is, what does the Bible say? How is the Holy Spirit moving in our lives? And then, what are the people around us in the Christian community saying? Three things that are essential for all of us in discerning what the Lord would have us to do. And as I was even thinking about that this week, I was reminded of uh, Megan and I praying through and thinking through having another baby. Uh, Just... A couple years ago, before Lottie came, and we were having a men's Bible study in our house. Some of you were there, I think. Uh, and, and I remember asking one evening uh, what the other brothers thought about it. Do, do, do you guys think that it would be wise for Megan and I to have another baby right now, to, to try to have another baby? And, and asking them to pray. Because it's important we begin to see as the church begins to grow the place of God's word. Children are good, Right? The, the, the prompting of the Spirit, we feel like the Lord's leading us, but also the importance of having other people, other Christians, speak into our lives. And we see all three of those here. And so as they follow the call of all three upon them, they go. They go, they go. We see there in verse 4 of chapter 13, from Antioch in Syria, and eventually, we're today in today's text, they're going to make their way to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, so these are two different cities. One, Antioch in Syria is in the east, and they're going to make their way hundreds of miles to stop today, at least, in Antioch of Pisidia. And they do this first by going down to Seleucia, and from Seleucia, which was a port city, they sail to Cyprus, which is an island in the middle of the sea. And once they get there, we see that they make their way from Salamis, which is on the east end of the island, all the way to the west end, to the city of Paphos. And as they make their way, they're doing one thing in particular. What is it? You see there in verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. There's a lot for us here to learn about missions in our own lives. Particularly, we see here that as Saul and Barnabas go, they are determined. They are determined to obey God's word in their lives. And they're systematic about it. They don't just hop around, but they have a plan to go. And one of the things that's been encouraging to me 
as one of the pastors and as, as our pastors have been praying about how the Lord would grow us as a church that is able to invest and equip for missions is the importance of the work of the Spirit in planning and preparing. And God has been faithful to begin to grow some organic opportunities for us as a church. But it's something that we continue to pray about as elders. And we would ask that the church that you guys continue to pray about that we may grow in a church who is like Barnabas and Saul here in their determination and their planning and their purpose. We should receive well the rebuke from Leonard Ravenhill who said, Today Christians spend more money on dog food than on missions. It's sad reality, but that's the truth for many Christians around the world today. And we do not want to be in such a church. And so we are spurred on by Paul and Barnabas here. And so they make it to the city of Paphos where they meet some resistance. Friends, this has happened over and over and over again in this book. And so we should not be surprised that it happens again or that it happens in our own lives. But they face resistance from this man named Bar-Jesus, which literally... Translated means son of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a very common name. We shouldn't assume here that he's attached himself to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that he is a, first a magician, meaning that he's practicing some dark magic, some uh, demon magic, literally, in the text. And he's also a false prophet. Now, Luke goes to a great lengths here to tell us that this is not a good prophet like we just had in the church in Antioch. But he's a false prophet, meaning that he is speaking false words on behalf of God. And that is exactly what he does. Luke also gives him the name of Elimus, which means wise, oddly enough. And he's friends here with the proconsul, who is just like a senator or a governor in the region, named Sergius Paulus. I mentioned last week there's some good names for future children here. So any of you have a baby sometime soon, Sergius Paulus would be a good one too. So I'll just add that on there. But you see this guy, Sergius Paulus, he, he calls for Barnabas and Saul. He says, come, I want to hear the word of the Lord. But this guy, Bar-Jesus, stands up and opposes it, proving and showing that he is a false prophet. And so then we have this man named Saul. Now Paul begins to step up. And oppose Bar-Jesus. Now, I want to stop here and just point out in verse 9 what we see in the text. Because a lot of times there's a misunderstanding. I don't even know how it comes about that Jesus, somewhere along the way, changed Saul's name to Paul. We never find that in the Bible. In fact, we overlay, really it seems like the story of Abraham, Abram becoming Abraham. We overlay that onto Acts somehow. But what we find here in the text is that Saul actually just takes up the name Paulos, which is a Greek name. Much in the way that folks who uh, are not from America, perhaps when they come here and become citizens, they will take on an Americanized name to go with their native name. Uh, this is what we actually find Saul doing. As he goes out to the nations and begins engaging with the Gentiles, it seems that he then takes on a Greek name. Maybe he's had it forever, but he takes on this Greek name of Paul instead of the Jewish name of Saul. So just want to clarify that. Jesus never says, I'm changing your name officially. Uh, but he, he takes on this new name as we begin to see the gospel go to the Gentiles. And he comes and he rebukes Bar-Jesus. And one of my favorite lines from the whole Bible you son of the devil. Now, let's be careful here and not just overlay and, and take this as a prescription ourselves that anytime somebody says something we don't like, that we say, you son of the devil. I don't think that's a proper application of this passage. But what we do here see is the continued pushback against Jesus. The continued pushback that Jesus' people receive from the world. That we should not be surprised when those around us who walk in darkness, who walk in the ways of Satan himself, are opposed to us. And the lesson to take away from these verses then is one of encouragement, really. That what happened to them continues to happen and will happen to us as it's happened to God's people throughout the ages. That even when people desire to hear, they may be those who try to step in the middle and say, don't listen to them. They're crazy. But we see here that Paul stands up and he begins to speak. He speaks this word of rebuke and God's judgment on Bar-Jesus. And it comes to pass. And God is able to use even that one who is opposed to him 
to now bring salvation to Sergius Paulus. Speaking of speaking up, we then move into the next section where we find Paul and Barnabas began to do it even more. So let's look at the message declared in verses 13 through 41. Let me read 13 through 16 for us. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch at Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he begins to speak. We're going to look at what Paul says here in just a minute. It's really Paul's first sermon that we have recorded. He has preached before, we're told. But now we actually find out what exactly he says. But as before we get to that, we see now that they're in this new Antioch. Antioch in Pisidia. And notice that they have gathered in the synagogue. And Luke makes note that it is after the reading of the Law and the Prophets that Paul is given the opportunity to offer some encouragement. And so really the basis for everything that Paul is about to say is the very word of God. I, I want to make that clear because it, that's the basis of our preaching in this church. But it really provides the basis for understanding God's word and understanding everything that Paul is about to say. So what does Paul encourage them with? And what shall we be encouraged with? Well, let me read to us the first section to verse 20. Picking up in the second half of verse 16, look there with me. It says, this is words of Paul. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. What we have here really is this beautiful picture of what we find in our Old Testament. Paul specifically here is speaking to Jews and those who fear God, meaning those non-Jewish followers of Judaism, the proselytes of the day. And what does he focus on? Some of you have been in church for many years, read that, and you're like, oh, that's just the Old Testament. But don't miss what he specifically focuses on as he's telling the story. And it's simply this, the work of God himself. The work of God. Notice what he says. Look back at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That it was the work of God in choosing them. Specifically, he's focusing on the book of Genesis here and the choosing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in particular. So we have the book of Genesis. Next, he says, this, this God of the people of Israel, he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now he's focusing on the book of Exodus and what we find there. Uplifted arm, he led them out. That it is the very arm, the very hand of God that leads the people out of Israel. Verse 18. For about 40 years, he, meaning this God, put up with them in the wilderness. What do we have here? We have the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy laid out for us in a single verse. Then we find in verse 19. After destroying seven nations. Who? God. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance, the book of Joshua. And so in just the span of a few verses, Paul has covered the very story of Scripture and some of its biggest highlights. But the thing that he wants them to understand that it is God who has done this work. He doesn't stop there, though, does he? He says all of this took about 450 years. One of the notes that David made in Sunday school today that we tend to make and want to make very often is the Lord's timing is not ours. It took him 450 years on purpose. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
What has he covered here? He's covered the book of Judges, and he's gone into now 1 Samuel. Let's keep reading, though. Picking up in verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But no, behold, after me is one who is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now what has Saul covered? We see now that he has covered First and Second Samuel in speaking about Saul and speaking about the uprising of David and the king. He has covered the Psalms as he quotes it there. He also says that of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. What's he talking about there? Well, he makes the promise to David initially in 2 Samuel 7. But really, we see this bear out in Kings, in Chronicles, and in the Prophets. So what I want you to see now is that what Paul has done and the opportunity he has given to preach the word is that in the span of about five to ten verses, he has covered the entire Old Testament. And what is the one thing that he has wanted the people to see? God did it. God did it. God did it. God did it. God promised and then did it. All the way up to John the Baptist who comes in the beginning of of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He comes forth as the final prophet preparing the way for Jesus. Friends, I I point this out because I wonder if you notice, if you take a note of the story of the Old Testament, that it is the story of God and what He has done. It is not the story of some laws and some rules that were given to some people who tried to obey them and just messed up over and over and over again. That's included. It's not the story of some fathers and some judges and prophets and kings and some pretty songs that we have in the book of Psalms and some little nuggets of wisdom in Proverbs. Those things are included. But finally and fully, Paul just taught us how to read our Bibles That it is the story of what God has done. And this is essential to understanding not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. The thing that I want us to come away from this morning is the thing that David's really been drawing out in our Sunday school class. Is the hand of God at work in the redemption of his people. Friends, this is essential not just for our own faith, but for those of you who are parents, this is essential for us to be teaching our children. One of the ways that we do it as parents is is we, we capture the entire story of the Bible in this way. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. Now that may sound reductionistic and, and breaking it down too small, but that is exactly what Paul has just told us, is it not? That it is God who is building His kingdom, who is at work amongst His people despite their continual breaking of the covenant and their continual rebellion against Him. Until finally, He brings about the one who will redeem it all. Let's continue reading, picking up in verse 26. He renews His call for them to listen here. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand his utterances, I'm sorry, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But... God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
after renewing this call to listen, the story shifts, doesn't it? No longer is Paul covering hundreds and hundreds of years in a single verse, but he narrows down on 33 years in particular. No, really the last days of Jesus' life here on the earth. He begins it there in verse 27 by focusing on the state of the Jews during Jesus' time. They did not recognize him or understand the prophets. Now, by recognizing him, he doesn't mean that, that, that they had been told that Jesus was going to have shoulder-length hair and have a beard that was this long and have discolored eyes and, and be about this tall. No, the recognizing him is that the entire Old Testament is speaking of his coming as the Messiah. And when he showed up and did everything that the Bible said that he was going to do, they didn't see it. And so they fulfilled all that was written in the prophets. They carried out all that was written of him. What does Paul mean there? All that was written of him. We're going to see in a moment, Paul's going to quote from Psalm, the Psalms and from Isaiah. So perhaps what he had in mind was a few of those. Perhaps Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Perhaps Psalm 31, 13. For I hear the whisper of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Perhaps Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Perhaps Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of these things in the Old Testament speak to the one who would come, speak to our Savior, who fulfilled them all even in his anguish and suffering, perfectly. And so he died. Paul doesn't leave it there. In fact, Paul then turns to focus even more specifically on one central truth about Jesus. Find it there in verse 30. But God. Don't miss the power of that phrase. He has just spent the entire first half of his sermon talking about how God did it, God did it, God did it. Jesus comes for those everything and he's dead, but God. God has raised him from the dead. Again, we see who is finally and fully at work in Jesus' life. So Jesus appeared to his witnesses, those chosen apostles, Peter and the gang, and he commissions them to go. But Paul's sermon isn't finished. I said he focuses in here on what God does. Look at verses 32 through 39. And we bring you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul here quotes from, if you want to write these down in the margin of your Bible, you are my son today, I've begotten you, is Psalm 2, 7. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, is Isaiah 55, 3. You will not let your holy one see corruption, is Psalm 16, 10. 
Paul has a way of reading the Old Testament that many of us miss. Seeing Jesus. But particularly, what does he focus on here? He focuses on the resurrection of Christ. Now, I realize this sermon would make a fantastic Easter sermon. But the sad reality for many of us is that's the only time we really think about the resurrection. But what Paul teaches us in this little sermon is the great significance and centrality of the resurrection to understanding who Jesus is and what the very gospel, good news, promises that he has brought are all about. He teaches us here using this word corruption four different times. This word corruption, you can underline it and write it out to the side. It means literally to decay or decompose. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus, who was only in the tomb for three days, saw no decomposition. He saw no decaying, but is brought back from the dead without ever receiving the blemish of a decaying body. Unlike David, who died and was buried and whose body became worm food, Jesus knows none of it. Why is this important? Why is this important? Well, friends, it is interesting in noting that a denial of the resurrection is nowhere to be found in early anti-Christian apologetics. What I mean by that is in those folks who fought and pushed and argued against Christianity in the early life of the church, nowhere take up resurrection as, as something false, as something to use against God's people. But you would think that if you wanted to stamp out this fledgling religion, killing the resurrection would be the way to go. So why don't we ever find in any historical documents any of the early anti-Christians using resurrection as their defense that, ah, oh, Jesus, that guy did not come back from the dead. I think the reason why is because too many people knew it was true. There were too many people who had been witnesses. There may have been bewilderment to the significance of it, but the fact that Jesus' resurrection was never denied shows that he was clearly raised from the dead. The question then becomes, what is the significance of the resurrection? And Paul says here that very significance, that it is the very core of Christianity. He speaks only briefly about the death of Christ. But spends the entire last section of his sermon talking about Jesus' resurrection. Why is it so important? Look at verse 39. I'm sorry, 38 and 39 to find the answer. He says, let it be known to you, therefore... Because Jesus was raised from the dead, that therefore, because Jesus was raised from the dead, because he so saw no corruption, because his body is perfectly restored and taken up into heaven, because he saw no blemish, no decay, no decomposition, therefore, brothers, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Friends, why is the resurrection of Christ so important and so central to the message of Christianity? Because it means that sin has been killed. It means that sin and its reign and its power and its rule has been canceled out. Because it means that everything Jesus said and did are true. His resurrection is the amen to every promise that he makes. It shows that he really is who he said that he is. For many of us, especially for some of you children, hearing about Jesus' resurrection may not sound that crazy. But understanding the importance of it and the place of it for our very faith it's essential that we worship one who has seen no corruption 
and who has ascended into heaven. What that also means, because we know after his resurrection, he went about showing them his scars, is that the scars of Christ are part of his perfection. They are the part of his glory because they show that he has paid for it all and that sin is dead. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand as the very core of our faith. That we worship one who died but did not stay dead. And that he has risen. So that we may have forgiveness of our sins and so that we may be free from the condemnation that comes from the law. May we take this up as friends of one another and helping one another behold this truth. May we take it up as parents as we help explain to our children that they cannot save themselves, but there is one who came, who lived and died and rose again. May we take up the importance and significance of the resurrection in our evangelism. In Paul's sermon here, we find such a beautiful, beautiful story of all of Scripture. My encouragement would be to take this sermon up and read it again this week and meditate on just how glorious God is. And then what are you to do with it? Well, Paul shows us what we are to do with every presentation of the gospel, and that is call for a response. This is not just some good news in a newspaper that you can then throw into the recycling bin, but this is news that you have to do something with. Look at verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And now he's going to quote Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In Paul's call for a response, he gives them a warning that to reject the news that he has just shared about Jesus Christ means perishing. It means damnation. It means separation from God. And friends, we make that same call and warning to you today. That those who reject Christ and his living and dying and resurrecting, to reject him means perishing. So we must expect a response. As we present the gospel, we must desire a response. We must call for a response. And in the final section now we see the two responses, the two possible responses rise to the surface. The message received, point three. Let me read to us verses 42 and 43 to see how this all begins. And as they went out, the people, of God, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. When Paul finishes his sermon, things are breaking up there in the synagogue. And what do the people say? They say, will you come back next week and tell us this again? We want to hear more about this. They begged. It's that same Greek word as encouragement that's used earlier. What are these things? What do they want to hear more of? Well, friends, it's the thing that I hope all of us desire more of, and it is the exposing of the Scriptures. It is expositional preaching. It is laying out what God's Word says and what that means for us. There's a certain hunger and a desire here to know the Word. And some of them follow him. Not spiritually follow him like they're his disciples, but but actually follow him. They follow him down the road. And he urges them to do what? He urges them to continue in the grace of God. Now it's interesting here, for maybe the first time in Acts, but we definitely see it, that these people who want to know more, we don't see any mention of the Holy Spirit. We don't see any mention of Paul baptizing them. Why doesn't Paul baptize them? Why doesn't he 
Why do we see the Holy Spirit coming? Why don't we see an affirmation? But why does he tell them to continue in the grace of God? Because what Paul realizes that many of us need to begin to understand is that there is a difference between conversion and clamor. There is a difference between being truly coming under the blood of Christ and just simply being interested in it. And so Paul gives them this command to continue in the grace of God. He tells them, keep going. Just keep going. Keep learning. Be back next week. And so they do. It's the right call on Paul's part, seeing how they respond when the next Sabbath rolls around. Look back at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The first part of the section, we find the Jews refuse to hear the message And they refuse from their very hearts. The whole city has now shown up. When it says the whole city, it includes the Gentiles. This is true revival. We see here how the word works in in God's economy of things. And the whole city comes to hear about all of this noise that is being caused. And this guy who's there, he's talking about this God who works in powerful ways. And this one Jesus who had come. We want to hear more about the whole city shows up. May God do the same thing in our own days, friends. And we're reminded of the parable of the four soils that Jesus tells. He says this, Jesus himself in Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word. We've seen that with the Jews now. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And that is exactly what Luke exposes in the heart of the Jews here. You notice, and he said this before, that it is jealousy. That it is jealousy in their hearts. It's not that they disagree with Paul. It's not that what they they think he's saying is wrong. But he exposes the very disposition within them that they don't like that now all the Gentiles have showed up. They don't like that they have a more that Paul and Barnabas have a more fruitful ministry than they had. Friends, I wonder what things in our own lives may cause us to walk these same paths and thrust aside the life of Christ. This jealousy over the revivalistic nature and over the Gentile curiosity has now caused the word to be choked. In the lives of the Jews. So Paul and Barnabas speak boldly. They don't hold back. They call out their jealousy. Thrusting it aside. And they say that you have judged yourselves. What a condemning word. That they speak. That they have judged themselves unworthy. For eternal life. But even in saying it. Paul is able to point again. Why they are speaking. That they are speaking so that they may receive. Eternal life. And then quoting from Isaiah 49.6, which is a servant song fulfilled by Jesus at work through them. He says, now we are going to the Gentiles. So what do we see? Well, that's where we find the conclusion of our passage. Let me read it for us, picking up in verse 48. I love this verse. May it be so with us. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, what do we do with this? What do we do with the message of Jesus Christ? Do we receive it like we find the Gentiles receiving it here? That they rejoiced because they were welcomed in. They were welcomed in. 
And Luke says that all who were appointed to eternal life believed. We don't have time to wrestle with what this verse means. Many may struggle with the concept of what Luke has just said, that there were some who were appointed and they believed. But the core of it is is this, that they believed because God had shown himself to them. They believed because they had been chosen. They believed because Christ had set his very love upon them. As Isaiah 49, 6 tells us that he had become a light to them. And now they were seen. Which brings us, as Luke often does, to conclude with the state of the disciples. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want to close by just asking us, and maybe you can ponder this this afternoon and this week, but why were the disciples filled with joy? And if I could press it, why are we so often not? Friends, we find it's first and foremost because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But they have begun to see how God is at work. They have seen their sinfulness and at the same time seen the joy that comes from knowing the one who takes that sinfulness away. So my encouragement to us, as we consider the very message of Christianity, is that we would allow our lives and our loves to begin to be transformed by the story that in it holds the hope of life evermore. And that we would take it, imparting joy to others. I'll close with a quote from Tom Wells in his book, A Vision for Missions. He says this, We must not treat that knowledge, meaning the knowledge of Jesus, Simply as a source of delight, we must do something more. We must follow in the train of those who, knowing God, have proclaimed him. Here is our task. Here is an additional delight. This knowledge, like all knowledge, is enjoyed best when it is shared. And this knowledge of God, like no other knowledge, will bring life and health to a sin-sick world. It is the glory of the Christian to tell out the glory of God. God made us for this. Let us arise and do it with all our might. Will you pray with me? God, we ask that you would make us people who find great joy and delight in the gospel story. And that as such, we would be people who tell the story over and over again. Holy Spirit, come and work in our lives as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.